Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 35 of Yoga Land. On today's episode, I speak to Kelsey Crow. Kelsey is the co-author of a new book called There Is No Good Card for This, What to Say and Do When Life is Scary, Awful, and Unfair to the People You Love. And Kelsey wrote the book with uh, designer Emily McDowell. You're probably familiar with Emily's work or you've seen it even if you haven't connected it with her name. She's a well-known designer and she's really well known for her line of empathy cards that are really funny and spot on. Kelsey and Emily are both cancer survivors and they both just generally have a wealth of experience in the empathy space and it comes through in the book. It's an amazing book. I recommend it, highly recommend it to anyone. You know, a few episodes ago, I spoke to Bo Forbes about empathy and we we were really kind of talking about empathic distress and how to take care of yourself when you over-empathize. And I, I do consider myself an empath, but even if you're an empath, sometimes you will turn away from difficult situations, perhaps because you feel things a little bit too deeply. So whether you consider yourself an empath or not, this book is a really handy, actionable manual for helping you support people that are close to you and people in your community appropriately and in a way that will, you know, obviously support them, but as Kelsey points out, will also bring you joy. And that's a really big thing that she makes clear in the book is that she sees in the people that she's interviewed and all of the data that she's mined, that there's really a lot of joy and gratitude that goes along with supporting people when they're going through a difficult time. So enjoy the conversation and let me know what you think. I always love to hear from you. You know, it's incredibly helpful if you share the podcast on social media or email it or just tell your friends about it. It's also helpful if you leave iTunes reviews or if you leave comments on the podcast page itself. And you can find that at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 35. Okay, see you on the other side. What's interesting too, I think, even in areas where, you know, like cultivated religious practices around grief, and obviously in the Jewish tradition, there is a lot. Even C.S. Lewis, a Christian theologian, uh, described a lot of patronizing remarks that he received from fellow Christians. And it's definitely not a foolproof way to uh, insulate us from some of the insensitive remarks that can happen. And also, too, even say, you know, at a generous acknowledgement that grief can take a year, right? It still can take so much longer than that. Absolutely. So I really... Uh, crave those structures also just for reasons of my own life and personal experience, but they aren't the total solution. Yeah. Still takes a level of psychological, sociological shared introspection, I think. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you you make a really good point. There is, you can have the structure and still, you know, not know what to say, not actually know when you get into the direct face-to-face interaction, it, you know, you can still have that, that trouble. You may even uh, fall on religious oriented cliches, like more easily than your average person, 
presuming I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, I'm a Jew, you're a Jew, you know, whatever it is, this will work for you. And spoken to many people for whom it did not work. Yeah. Okay. Well, so let's, let's back up. I would love to know for those who haven't read the book, what do you hope that people walk away with, you know, after they've read it? Two things. I hope that they walk away feeling more confident to connect with someone around their time of suffering. If that uh, is a good choice, right? Not to just sort of start randomly connecting with anybody and everybody. <laughs> and then second, that they find that that connection is actually nourishing for them and joyful and not draining of energy. I think that is such a nice part of the book. I think there's two parts of the book that make it really unique in, in topic, talking about this topic, because I think the, the book could have come across as kind of scolding <laughs> and there's none of that. Like the, it's just, it's not judgmental. Like you and your co-author, Emily, even share at certain points, like where you get tripped up with certain things. And so it's really relatable. And I think the other thing is, well, it's a fun book to read. It's a fun book to read. It's, it's yeah. right. That that's really amazing to me. That was the point. That's great. I mean, I think that's so smart because if we want to learn about things that are like, let's face it, we're talking about suffering. We're talking, talking about difficulty. That's hard for people to look at. So the fact that you made it, first of all, you made it fun and, and funny is great. So I was wondering if that was an intention as you two were creating it. And how did you, how did you do that? Like, how did you actually execute that? Well, it's, you know, I've been working on this project for about 15 years, <laughs> gathering research and interviewing people and uh, developing the structure of the book and then developing empathy boot camps that got me deeper into this work by doing conversation with people. And always from the very, very beginning, I wanted it to be funny and relatable. Uh, I'm not a therapist. My background is policymaking and what I wanted initially was a kind of manual. I didn't want something that required too much internal change for me to achieve it. I wanted something fairly actionable. I also wanted something funny because it is a hard topic potentially. Mm -hmm. So how could somebody want to pick this up and actually read it? And I also wanted something that wasn't moralizing or um, scolding because I came from the place of being really bad at this myself. You know, I always say in my workshops, I'm a Sagittarius from Brooklyn. Like this does not come easily for me. I had an instance where I shied away from a friend, felt terrible about it and wanted to fix myself around this work. So it comes, you know, from a total place of humility. And that is reflected, I think, in the book and the humor. I enjoy humor myself. And so that was just a given. And I'd even wanted it illustrated. So I had peppered initial drafts um, before I met Emily with, you know, clip art kinds of illustrations and had initial readers of the book to kind of help me cross check certain assumptions and help me develop it more. And they all were kind of looking at me quizzically like, huh, why that? And I was like, no, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) And the book, you know, it was a fine book. It wasn't a done book by any means. I thought it was done. But when I met with Emily, it was such a match. I mean, everybody who knew what I'd been trying to do knew that her tone and her illustrations was just like sort of what I was seeking. And she and I connected through a friend 
And I did a lot more. There was like a very messy middle as I continued to develop the book. And she and I mind melded seamlessly around the tone. She was uh, really helpful around um, times when I was struggling with structure. And it really kind of was amazing that we could just be so eye to eye. Yeah, it comes through. Yeah, I I absolutely w- am really impressed by how seamlessly you and Emily seem to meld together. How, how did you, and I, it's really cool that you actually have kind of a design concept as you were, you know, as you were writing. So how did, how did you get connected with her? Through a mutual friend. And also I am a card collector. So I know a lot of greeting card folks. I knew of Emily's work. I know of a lot of people in that industry. And then a friend of mine who works at one of those stationary companies at a trade show saw Emily and said, you need to connect with my friend Kelsey. And of course, everyone had been saying to me, I need to connect with Emily. And it was, that was it. And she was great because she took a risk on an unknown. You know, she has a big, high profile brand and my work is just happening in the Bay Area. But if you aren't here, you don't know about it. So I felt lucky that she took that risk. And um, she, I think, felt lucky that she had a partner who had already given a lot of thought to this because people have been asking her to do a book. And she said, I, I, I don't want to like pretend that I know how to write a book on this subject, my cards. I believe in this work, but I want it to be a serious book. And, um, a lot of publishers would have taken anything, coupons, whatever. And she really wanted something more substantive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really is a perfect match because you have all this research and I want to talk about that a little bit. And yeah, I mean, I could see her with her design brain. It's like you provided all of the foundation with all of the, with all of the research and with the, the experience that you have of teaching the empathy boot camps. So you said in the book, I think I'm getting this right. You did about 900 interviews, more than 900 interviews. Uh, I had 900 survey responders um, to open-ended questions. And then I did 50 interviews. Wow. So two things. Was there anything that just jumped out at you as like commonalities? And is there anything that surprised you from doing, collecting this much data? Well, the commonality is what surprised me, which is, well, two things. First, that people really don't want your advice or your opinion. (laughs) Yeah, that comes through. Yeah, that really comes through. I really believed entering into this work that, it was just that I didn't know what the right advice was, you know? So I was trying to just find that in this like morass of data. And what I just kept hearing over and over again is how much people really, really want to just talk about what they're experiencing. And then of course, just thinking about the topic, understanding why that is the case, why, why we don't want advice. So that was one piece. Uh, and then another very consistent piece was how much people appreciated others just showing up. And I worked very hard in my interviews to allow people to unload about what went wrong. And my whole premise of my invitation to folks was come and share all the, you know, all the disasters, you know, get it off your chest. And people were really reluctant to do that. And they really wanted to focus on the wonderful things people did. Now, of course, I got it out of them because we've all had those experiences, but I was surprised at how hard it was and how 
much people were filled really primarily with gratitude and for that notion of just showing up. Yeah. So just that showing up, however you do it and keeping yourself out of the equation, uh, by not offering up advice, for example, um, being the two key learnings that I got out of it. Yeah. So why do you think it's hard to not give advice? Like, why is it our inclination to just, yeah, I actually, I have this page open. It's like one of my favorite pages in the book, page 95. It's the, it's Emily's, um, graphic chart of what kind of non-listener are you? Yep. And you have the sage, the doomsayer, the all about me, the epidemiologist and the optimist. And I was like really bummed out that I noticed that I fall into like three categories. Right. (laughs) I keep hearing that. I I was like, oh, I'm the sage and the epidemiologist and probably the all about me sometimes too. (laughs) So what is that inclination that we have to, where does that come from? Yeah. I think it comes from two places, one more generous than the other. In the more sort of generous space, we want to help. And when someone's in pain, we are trained that being helpful means doing something. Doing something means fixing it with what we understand to be the problem, giving new ways to look at a situation, doing something. And it's certainly how we are rewarded and get our sense of contribution in the world and almost every other facet of our lives. If our if we just sat and watched our spouse do the dishes and said, I'm just being present with you, that would not fly, you know? If you're at work and you're just being present with everybody, but not actually doing stuff and solving problems, even contributing in meetings, it's not very helpful. So it's certainly what we come to expect of ourselves and want of each other in so many parts of our lives. But when it comes to this area of pain and personal difficulty, what we don't fully understand is how vulnerable and ashamed people feel even experiencing these emotions and how complicated the circumstance that they are in is. Grief is never uncomplicated. So when an outsider who's hearing about this pain presumes to know what to say or do to fix this situation, they are serving to, number one, almost humiliate that person in pain by suggesting that there is some fix out there that they are unaware of. So it makes them feel smaller rather than supported. Mm -hmm. And the second difficulty with it is it's often wrong. Yeah. Because we don't really know the situation. So that's the sort of benevolent side of our impulse. The less benevolent side is we all want to feel smart. Right. And frankly, if we've experienced any kind of difficult time ourselves, we have muddled through it. And with that 2020 hindsight that often comes when somebody else is talking about their problem, all of a sudden we're this like wise sage expert who says, this is what, you know, happened to me and this is what you should do. But it wasn't like that when we were going through it, you know, in all reality, in all honesty. Yeah. So, but it's so gratifying to all of a sudden feel like this expert in something where you probably felt like a groveling mess. Yeah. I think that's the two sides of that um, story that we want to help and that we want to heal our own mess by all of a sudden becoming an expert at it um, in somebody else's situation. 
I hadn't thought of it that way. I hadn't thought of it quite that way. Like one of the things I think of, and could because you touch on this in the book, is like one of the key pieces of key suggestions that you have is when someone tells you something to pause for just three seconds before you react. I think that is so brilliant because I can't, you know, it's burned into my brain, you know, just a few people who, when I told them I had breast cancer, like went, oh my God, or, you know, just the look on their face of like disgust and pity at the same time or whatever. And I see that people are really afraid of seeing someone else's pain and just witnessing it, you know, and just like being with it. It's like, it's such a tendency of ours to want to turn away. And if we can't just like turn our back and walk away from someone, we start creating another reality. Like, oh, well, my sister had this and this happened. And so it's going to be fine. Like you, you brought up the one um, example of the person who had a child who was potentially being diagnosed with something. And the doctors had told her she had a 50, 50, the child had a 50, 50 chance of getting this diagnosis. And her friend said something to the effect of like, well, I can't, I can't even remember how, how it was phrased. You might remember. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 50% is better than a hundred percent, you know, and, or no, no, wait, uh, what was it? Well, something like that. Yeah. And she's like, well, there's a 50% chance I might eat a hamburger tonight. Like (laughs) it really happened. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, you don't, it's that tendency to be afraid of someone else's pain. Like you said, is so diminishing to the other person. It's like immediately the other person has to like recalibrate their own feelings to figure out how to now navigate this person's opinion of their feelings, you know? Exactly. And so that's what happens is we start telling people how to feel. And empathy is not about telling people how to feel. Yeah, that's major. So in in that example, rather than trying to reduce somebody's worry, your primary job is to hear their worry. You know, if you're skillful at this or if you've had experience with this in the past, you can hear someone's worry and have what scientists call, you know, an experience of emotional resonance where you are truly connecting with that person's experience. So that person doesn't feel that you're shutting them down, can't tolerate those feelings. And you may in fact have an example of a sort of positive outcome to give someone hope, you know, if that is true. (laughs) So it's not to say that it's always hogwash, but the way it's often delivered is as some kind of formulaic, pat, uh, offhanded remark that's really about filling up airtime than about fully understanding the scope of the person's situation and connecting with their feelings of fear around it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the things that I was thinking as I was reading it is is it, it almost seems to suggest like slowing down your interactions with people. And, you know, we have all these slow movements, like the slow food movement and the slow parenting movement. I feel like it's almost like (laughs) the slow connection movement, the slow relationship movement. Like we're, we always have this tendency to want to fill things up and then move on, like move on with our day and move on with the whatever. And it's like, you know, there's a part of you that has to be willing to sit with someone and let them take as much time as they need to get out whatever they need. And that includes sitting in silence potentially with that person. Absolutely. And there's, you know, something I talk about in the workshop and that's in the book, which is just because silence is uncomfortable does not mean that it is wrong. Yeah. It's just that we're not used to it. Totally. You know, that, that was the other, um, 
thing that came through for me is that I think that sometimes we avoid these situations. I know I have because I fear the awkwardness of me saying the wrong thing. I fear the awkwardness of it not coming across as authentic. I fear I fear the situation. And it seems to me that you acknowledge, and I'm just wondering what you think about this, that like even with these tools that you offer, like there might still be a slight level of awkwardness. There might still be a level of fearfulness and that's okay. And that gets into having compassion for ourselves that we recognize this isn't easy. It may be simple, (laughs) but it's not always easy. And because it's not feeling easy, doesn't mean I'm bad at this. doesn't mean I shouldn't be doing this. Have compassion for the human endeavor, which is connecting around times of pain can be hard. Mm-hmm. Now, if that feels hard, you're not flawed. You are a human being. Mm-hmm. And that is such an important premise for authentically connecting in these situations. And so along with that, I even say one of our key takeaways from this and in, in this work as human beings is to learn to live with our empathy mistakes. Mm, yeah, so true. Right? That we're not going to get it right every time because even if we are always saying or doing the so-called perfect thing, grievers are super mercurial creatures. One day asking how are you will feel like a gift and another it will feel completely annoying and overkill. Mm, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can't control that. Uh, you can control your intention. And um, we have to just accept that. If we don't accept that, then when there's a misstep, right, where what you offered isn't what somebody wanted, we may believe, ah, you see, I don't know how to do this. I shouldn't try to do this. And that's just the wrong takeaway. So I try to really emphasize as much as I can, and this is my own experience, as well as so many people I interviewed, even if what we offered wasn't accepted or wasn't openly acknowledged for, you know, being useful, 99% of the time it was appreciated. And we just can't look for external validation in this work. Again, going back to compassion for ourselves that we tried and that is bounty and reward enough. Right. And that's valuable, right? Just, just like, like you say, I think you say kindness is your um, calling, right? It's like, that, I think that's a really, really good point. It's the same thing when you're going through a medical diagnosis. You go through so many, so many questions and there's so much mystery around it for a while that, you know, every day, every moment you're feeling different and just that people reach out, it's, it's still valuable even if you can't take it in at the time. Yeah. And there are ways like that I talk about in the book that are super practical. Like if you're not close, don't call like, right. You know, like just like that yeah. um, to help people figure out ways to do it. And two, if they're in shock, especially with something that's kind of tail spinning, you know, where you're just spinning, recognizing that someone just may not be in a state to talk about it. That doesn't mean you did anything wrong. (laughs) Yeah.
so going back to the the idea of of just listening and letting someone talk, I'm wondering if you've done any research around what it is about going through, you know, either a grieving process that, I mean, I wonder if there's any research done about literally just being able to talk as a way of getting through a difficult time. Oh, sure. Well, you know, there's a lot of discussion uh, about how storytelling sort of helps you. It's, you know, you're scaffolding your own ideas, your own experiences. And in the course of telling it, you're coming to understand your situation better. Mm. So that understanding, as we all know, our own insight sticks a lot better. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right, right. Integrates a lot better uh, is typically our best compass. So if we want to support in listening, allowing somebody to scaffold their feelings and understandings and perceptions of a situation in the course of storytelling, so they come to their own insights, that is incredibly valuable. Yeah, that's so interesting to think of it that way. I was sort of, yeah, I was sort of thinking about what is the mechanism there. And like you said, it's like, as you tell your story, as you tell how you're feeling, you're figuring it out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a lot in uh, communication studies and grief around that. Yeah. So I, I, I love that you and Emily at the beginning of the book share your, a little bit of your personal stories and, you know, what, how you both came to become interested in this work. And, and also you have the most lovely video on your website. It's so beautiful. Um, that, tells your story in a, in a condensed way too. And so basically that, you know, you were very close to your mother. She had mental illness. Um, when you were like a young adult, she went off her medication and you really lost her. And, you know, one of the lines in the video is I thought my, my emotional needs were my problem. Mm -hmm. And that line just spoke to me so much because I think everyone at some point in their life feels like they're too emotional or, they're too needy or they're being, they're misunderstood. Like they're, 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 they're feeling like an oddball because of what they're going through or what they're feeling. So I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that feeling that you had and what you've come to learn about that feeling from where you stand right now, like how that feeling could have been different potentially. Yeah. I mean, that, that experience had a hold on me for definitely 15 years or more. And that hold was a belief that my basic emotional needs, which were so strong, were shameful. So I did everything I could to repress them. I was extremely funny. Uh, I had um, health issues uh, pretty clearly uh, straight out of college. Uh, some just cervical cancer stuff. And I did it all by myself. Friends asked to go to appointments with me. I said, no, you know, I'm okay. I never asked for anything, but I want, because I wanted so much. And C.S. Lewis has this beautiful quote. He says, you are like a drowning, drowning man whose own reiterated cries deafen you to the voice you need to hear. I was crying so loud inside 
that I couldn't even take the hands that were being offered to me because I felt like I needed so much more than that. Like I just couldn't even open up that Pandora's box. So I was a very high functioning individual. Uh, I did the Peace Corps. I did a PhD program. That's amazing. I mean, you went into survival mode. Survival mode for 15 years, you know, and it was really my friend, Amy, who is such, you know, you talk about somebody who's like a slow relationship person. That's her. She's very gentle in how she moves in the world. And somehow that was just the right presence that I needed. And there's also a line in the video that says, I was ready to trust the questions. Mm Mm-hmm. So maybe people had asked and wanted to get to know and understand, but I didn't have trust that either I could handle it or that they would handle it carefully. And at that point, being who she was and maybe where I was at my life, I could trust her questions. And I started talking about my experience like I'd never before and then did all the therapy and all the wonderful things that I was able to do. And doing this book, has been a very fortunate kind of healing for me to see so many people respond to that call that society figure out a way to be there when people can't themselves ask. Yeah. Uh, That we all recognize the benefit of that. It's been a huge healing for me. That's amazing. You know, it's amazing. Amazing that you took that situation and were able to help other people. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Therein too comes the joy. When you can let compassion in, you can trust the compassion that you give. And you get to notice the joy and focus less on the fear. That's just good for everybody. Yeah, that is a really helpful point. And I think one that comes across really clearly in the book that, and it's true. I mean, we talk about actually in yoga practice, we talk about karma yoga. We talk about being of we, karma yoga, which means, you know, selfless service. It's this idea that you you give with the expectation of nothing in return, you, you know, and that, that, that you get something from that, you know, that that's not why you do it, but but you do. I mean, you just, and it's, I've been talking about this a lot, um, just on the podcast and in thinking about my daughter and it's funny, I, I've applied it in this other, this other thought process, which is looking at my daughter and wanting her to know that she's loved as she grows up and, and remembering how desperately I wanted to feel loved at certain times in my life. And I couldn't see that it was there. Mm. It was always there. But for whatever self-esteem issues, being a young woman, I I can't really unpack it in like these 30 seconds. But, you know, like I wasn't seeing it. And it wasn't until I really, truly embraced the idea that like, just be loving. And then you'll actually feel the love that people give you. If you're loving, you, you actually have to engage in the act to let it penetrate you and, and so that you can actually feel it. And it, it, it's a similar. It reminds me of that. You know, absolutely. Um, that if you if you really do reach out to people, and this is the other thing that I think is great about the book, even in the smallest ways, like you 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 have a little section about texting. Like, is it okay to text? Yes, it's okay to text. Yes, like, that's our <laughs> currency these days, right? Like, that's how we communicate, and it's true. It's like I try to you know remember sometimes, like 
someone I know was worried about a previous diagnosis that she had, like, I'm just going to check in with her today. I'm just going to text her and check in with her today. One of my favorite outcomes from when I do talks, for example, not the workshops because those are more interactive, but the talks is all of a sudden you start seeing people texting somebody and I hear it. Everybody comes to me afterwards saying, I just texted my friend. I just checked in with so-and-so and and I, I just feel so glad. Yeah. And it's, it's like, it's a small thing, but then maybe you, you've opened the door for them to ask for more help in some other way or for them to be able to process something. Or not, or just like, hey, you know, because sometimes we don't want to process or think, but we want to just feel seen. Yeah. So I want to talk about pity for a moment. Mm, Yeah. And I have to say, like, it is, I I have a twofold issue with pity. It drives me crazy when I see someone pitying someone else, because I think it's like a, a way of disconnecting. But I also have my own, you know, hang up about feeling like I, it sounds pitying to say I'm sorry to another person. Wait, are you saying you believe it does sound pitying? I I worry that if, if someone says something, I say, oh, I'm so sorry that that, that that sounds pitying. Uh Uh-huh. Right. So I, sometimes I'll just pause not knowing what to say, you know? Um, so yeah, I guess I just would want to ask you to sort of talk about, you know, the difference between pity and compassion. Yeah. I, I like the example that I come up with in the book to illustrate pity where, you know, you have an old guy walking up the hill and he's slow and he's limping and you can say, oh, wow, that poor, poor guy. That's, you know, sucks. It's just like so slow and it's so hard to get up there and He's doing this all by himself. Uh, or you could say, shit, man, I hope I have the gumption to get up there, even if I'm not, you know, fully body, fully abled and just go up the hill. And that's cool. Like you could look at that two very different ways. And the first way is pity and it, it's patronizing. And we do it all the time. Or in the other instance where, you know, you have somebody who's newly single, whether because of loss or divorce coming to a party where it's mostly couples and be like, Oh, just coming alone. That's so sad. A lot of people do that. Yeah. That is why people hide in the shadows because they don't want this circumstance to enshroud their entire being and identity and to really be a mark of anything negative at all life. And so the more that we accept that that's life, not that's pathetic. Yeah. Or that's their life. That's not my life. Right. That would never happen to me. The more it's about compassion. And so when we say, I'm sorry, it can go, it can be misread. That's for sure. You know, I have heard time and time again, how much people appreciate it. I'm sorry. So I do believe that that is the right uh, sentiment often when you have an understanding of how someone else is feeling about it. I do now, however, more than I used to say, how are you doing with it? Checking in before you. Yeah. Yeah. So someone uh, may say, I just miscarried. Now, if I know this person had wanted a baby, you know, I'm going to say, I'm so sorry. And it's, I'm sorry. It's like, that's, that shows your sympathy, your compassion for a person. If somebody had done that a number of months ago, you may want to ask, how are you doing with it now? 
And if they say, you know, I'm okay now, but it was hard, Mm -hmm. you know, but I think if we are coming from a compassionate place and you've read a book like this, then you clearly are, (laughs) you know, (laughs) (laughs) that err on the side of saying, I'm sorry, if your alternative is to not say anything at all. That's true. That is, that is, I did come away with, from the book thinking like, it's better to do something than to, to turn away and pretend that it's not your thing to say anything about. Right. Right. You can also, depending on just who you are as a personality, say that sucks. Mm. That's very affirming for a lot of people Mm -hmm. because then you share in some of the outrage. Yeah. Is there any research that you found that didn't make it into the book, but that you found interesting? Lots. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, I have a lot of chapters that I didn't include in the book that dive into each difficult time a lot in a lot more depth, like divorce, infertility, loss. So a ton, ton more to say, but I wanted something that could be a great primer. And so that's this one thing that was super interesting that I never expected was the field of communication studies and how much of it has looked at the notion of advice giving and how that plays out across gender, how that plays out across different psychological mindsets. So some people who with various tests might score as a characterize as something as open, somebody else might score more analytical depending on their disposition they will receive advice differently or they may want a different kind of advice. Somebody who's very analytical will really only appreciate expertly informed advice. Uh, You know, things like that, like you can sort of drill it down. Uh, And then even say, looking at research in difficult times, like how men and women might respond to divorce or those who have been left versus those who have done the leaving. Mm. Infertility, very different gender lines, uh, in that area. So there's a lot there. Wow. And what I tried to do was sift out from all of that, the most actionable basic stuff that will not put you in the doghouse. I I think you totally accomplished that. I really do. It is a great primer. It is a great primer. And it's like, like I said in the beginning, it's a great emotional intelligence primer too. You know, I think there's every reason for people to read, read it, even if you don't know someone who's going through something difficult right now in this very moment. That, I loved like reading people's comments on Amazon who they've kept the book. That was my whole hope that people would keep this as a resource and go back to it, you know? Yes, definitely. Did you, did anything come up around body language? That was like any commonalities around body language? You know, I did not investigate body language. And just you asking that shows my own bias right there. I will say I would have liked to have uh, looked at the question of touch more. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, touch is difficult too. Yeah, Yeah, it is difficult. You and I have both gone through breast cancer. And I was surprised when going through treatment how much I craved touch. Hmm. Uh, just somebody sitting on the couch and just rubbing my leg, you know, not something you normally do. <laughs> Maybe yoga. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In my uh, world, we don't. And, um, and I, and, you know, and I had read about touch 
but then there's the whole ask before you touch or, you know, all of these things around it. Yeah. And I just didn't feel confident in saying anything about it without investigating it more. And certainly a great question around body language. And when you ask that, is that how do we read people's body language in communication or? Yeah, just, or even kind of like the idea that you, um, the suggestion that you give of waiting three seconds Mm -hmm. before you speak, you know, maybe again, I mean, I don't know, it's hard, but like a suggestion around body language, maybe you don't lean in yet, or maybe you, yeah, just basically how do, how do people receive, how do people who are going through difficulty receive other people's body language as a reaction, as part of a reaction? I guess it's very subtle. There, yes. And there is certainly a lot researched and uh, described about body language and communication, um, even at the most basic, like head nodding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I didn't, maybe I, I think I just in one line had, you know, you can nod your head, just do the basic things that show that you're listening. But I didn't want to get people too self-conscious about what listening looks like. Even, for example, in um, the field of nonviolent communication, I don't know if you're familiar. I am. I'm not, I'm not in depth familiar with it, but it is from the yoga. There are a lot of yoga people who practice it. So, yeah. And I did a online sort of listening exercise that was based on that work, which I think is incredible work. Uh, I was on the board of a school where that was a key um, area of instruction for us with the students and it's super powerful, powerful work. So, but the one exercise that they have you do where you repeat back what you've heard, I was just really bad at it. (laughs) Uh, And yet I'm a very good listener. Yeah. So it almost felt too self-conscious for me. So I didn't want to prescribe too many behaviors that are listening. Yeah. I thought, sounds like people can handle three seconds. Yeah. Uh, but once you get too into, and then you nod your head, but don't nod too often. Yeah. Then you repeat back what they said. doesn't have to be exactly what they said. You know, I just didn't want people. Yeah. It can get a little canned. It can get a little canned too. I think, um, that's like, that's my only issue with nonviolent communication is I have felt at times like, I know you're using nonviolent communication on me. Can we just have like a regular conversation here? Can we just like, Yeah. That's a, yeah. Is there anything that, that changed for you in terms of the way that you communicate after writing the book? How listening and asking before I presume to know how someone feels. Mm. So I used because I'm a doomsayer, that's my listening type. I, uh, always presume that somebody was feeling pretty pessimistic about their situation and living here in California. I mean, it's taken me a long time to accept that some people are really just sort of optimistic. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? (laughs) I'm in the East coast too. So I want to say like, ah, you know, that's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. So instead I asked, so how are you doing with it? And that is a training for me that did not come naturally. Um, and the three seconds, because I tend to interrupt in most other environments. Are you from the East coast? I am. I'm from Pennsylvania. So, you know, East coasters, kind of talk over each other a little Mm -hmm. and that shows we're engaged and that we care and that we're, it's it's not to be rude. It's to be engaged and passionate, but it does not feel that way out here. Uh, It feels a little pushy. Yeah. So respecting that I can still be me in those other environments, but 
with the uh, matter of connecting in these moments to pause. Yeah. And just allow the other person to be them wherever they are. Right. Yeah. <laughs> who who would have guessed? <laughs> yeah, there are some really interesting, um, there are so many regional differences, obviously, but I do think that the East Coast, West Coast are particularly stark in communication style, you know, and there are just things that I adore about, about both. Right. You know, I, I, I adore like straightforward, just say what's going on. Like, let's not filter things too much that, and I think that is East coast. And I also really appreciate, like you said, the sort of like this sort of golden state optimism that people have out here, you know, and like hugs and I don't know. Yeah. 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 It's different. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to hear about, um, help each other out, which is an organization that you are, I think you're the founder. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And what, what you're working on these days? Well, you know, it's, it's a wonderful effort. I have this great board of women who just give me so much support. Um, and we also have, you know, some grant funding to do what I want this book to do, which is sort of mainstream tools for building relationships when it really counts. And we do that with the empathy boot camp. So I've done a lot of those in the Bay area mostly, uh, and talks it's right now it's me. I want to get to the point where there's enough demand for this work that, and I have trainers in the pipeline that want to do this where we can, you know, send other people out to do the workshops. And also another vehicle for doing this are these public art exhibits where we bring this notion of being there out into the streets with art that Help Each Other Out produces in collaboration with nonprofits like Bay Area Young Survivors for people who've had cancer, the dinner party for young people who've experienced a significant loss, people who have a story to tell about the kind of support that they received in a difficult time. And those exhibits are posters featuring someone and their story of a gesture and an entire neighborhood corridor adopts it and you have it for a week and it's called Help Each Other Out Week. I remember seeing it um, before I knew you. Oh, okay. In Heights. Like, I remember seeing one in the window of Moki's, and it's beautiful. It was a beautiful, beautiful campaign. It was, photography was beautiful enough that I stopped and actually read the whole thing, which is, you know, a big deal what? when you're that's walking that. down the yeah. street. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, and that's, I love, so, cause I'm a community builder for sure. Uh, I'm not your typical writer who writes in isolation uh, and produces. It's even in the book, I mean, what I have captured are elements of the public art exhibits of the launch that we had for help each other out in 2014. Um, Just so, so in the boot camps and all of it is in the mix, you know, the more that funding basically that we can get to implement these three areas, the better, I think Uh, I was hoping, and I'm hoping the book will provide a platform for help each other out and generate interest. Do you do the um, empathy boot camps in workplaces? It seems like it would be a great place to do. Well, those. you know, what's so funny is I do them at Stanford for their what is it like their wellness program, which is for all staff and faculty and whomever wants to come, and and it's a you know definitely well ascribed course, and also for UCSF uh, for a cross section of people uh, who are either providers, technicians to social workers, That's great to, too, you know, too. oh yeah. <laughs> 
And then also uh, volunteers that work in these settings. I have been trying to get it into companies and I keep saying it's like doing yoga in the seventies. Oh, they're not quite there yet. People are not there yet. Yet as you know, somebody uh, who has worked in the field as a, you know, I know evaluation and how do you evaluate impact. And this, this program has such impact for three hours of someone's time. Like the change is immediate. It's been evaluated. It's like super specific. And there was a big Amazon crisis that came out in 2015 where a journalist did some like uncovering of the Amazon culture about how brutal it was. And what a lot of people spoke to was how unkind colleagues and managers were during times of personal crisis. And this kind of workshop really helps you deal with that. Right. And it's a possible that they want me to position the work to speak to some bottom line on return and investment. And I am not enough of a business person, I guess, Mm -hmm. to do that. I need the message to speak for itself and hopefully others with more business mindset who get wind of this work. Mm-hmm. I just think it would be phenomenally valuable for any workplace to, to do this work. And like you said, it's not like a 16 week inv- training investment. No, it's three weeks and it's everyone changes. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's three days, it's three hours. <laughs> yeah. We should try, I should try to connect you with someone from Wisdom 2.0. I don't know if you know, do you know Soren Gordemar? I do. I mean, I know of him uh, and people have talked about him. Because so. I think he's done a lot of really great work in the, in the corporate space of, of, like you said, just connecting these kinds of ideas. Being, bringing humanity back into the workplace and why it can be an all around good. It's not one or the other. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so, so much, Kelsey. I am so appreciate your time. And I enjoyed this conversation. You were so thorough in thinking about this. I really appreciate that. Well, it really spoke to me. I mean, like I said, I think it's just a great book for anyone to pick up. And I deeply appreciate you and Emily putting it out into the world. So thank you. you. (laughs) All right. All right. More soon. Okay. All right, everyone, I hope you enjoyed the interview. You can find show notes for this episode at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 35. And I'll put links to Kelsey's book, her organization, Help Each Other Out, as well as Emily's cards and all of the fun products that she creates too. If you enjoyed this episode, you will likely really enjoy the episode with Bo Forbes, which is episode 31. So go back and listen to that one too. And until next week, enjoy your practice. Thank you.